Mark chapter 2 will be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have a pew Bible, or we call it a chair Bible because we don't have pews here. And you can find Mark chapter 2 on page 786. When you get there, please stand. And we're going to honor God's word by standing when it's read. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And, they would, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And this is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing, amazing passage of scripture. God, I know for me as I've sat and meditated on this text over the last week, it just causes me to marvel at the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. To just, in my own mind, try to imagine that scene of this paralytic sitting there who is unable to walk and use his arms and legs. And then suddenly you heal him and restore his body. It's just amazing. So God, this morning we pray that as we spend some time meditating and considering this passage of scripture, that God, you would cause us to marvel at your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God, would you use this time to stir our affections and our love for him and to strengthen and bolster our faith we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Please be seated. At this point in the ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the only word that we could use to accurately describe his experience would be the word celebrity. If you're a celebrity, especially if you're one of the really, really big ones, you could think, I guess of like Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey of recent, if you're like that in society, then you're the kind of person who no matter where you go, where you show up, 
There are crowds of people waiting to meet you. They know where you're going to be before you even get there. And they, they find out, they show up, and they're constantly trying to get something from you. Back in chapter 1, we read these words after Jesus casts a demon out of a man in a synagogue in Capernaum. This is verse 20, 28. It says, Immediately, his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So his fame was spreading far and wide. That very same evening, Mark tells us that the whole city was gathered together at the door. This is verse 33 of Simon's house to bring the sick to Jesus. So now the whole city's there. The following morning, Jesus was off alone in a desolate place, and he's praying to the Father. And when the disciples finally find him, here's what they announce to him. They say, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And then finally, in verse 45, as chapter 1 comes to a close, after Jesus heals a leper, we read this. It says, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. The people could not get enough of Jesus. They were hearing the stories about his incredible teaching and his powerful miracles, the ways, the ways that he's healing people and touching people and restoring people. And these stories are spreading like wildfire and, and people are beginning to come from really, really long ways away to just get a glimpse of this man, Jesus, who has come from Nazareth. Who is he? And he did what? Were probably the ongoing questions of the day. And this is the backdrop to what we've just read here this morning in Mark chapter 2. Jesus, again, is sort of riding a wave of popularity right now. And everybody is clamoring to get to know who he is. They just want to be in his presence and see what he's going to say or what he will do. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, what do you think this passage is about? Mark 2, 1 through 12. What do you think this passage is about? What would you say to that? You don't have to say it out loud. This isn't a public test right now. But just answer that internally. What, what do you think the text that Jaylene just read for us is about? Now, if your answer is, well, I think it's about the healing of the paralytic. That would be a great answer. In fact, that's what the heading of most of our Bibles say right here before chapter 2. It's Jesus healing a paralytic. That's a major feature in this passage to be sure. I mean, it just, it just consumes you as you read it. This incredible healing that Jesus performs. But that's not ultimately what these 12 verses are about. In the field of journalism... There's an expression that says, don't bury the lead. And the idea is, you, when, when you're writing a piece, you really want to get the big idea out there up front. Oftentimes, nowadays, they just capture it in the heading or the title of whatever the piece is going to be. And that's clickbait for all of us. But you don't want to bury the lead. You don't want people to have to figure out what you're actually getting at four or five pages into the article. You just tell them right up front. And with a text like this in Mark chapter 2, we do not want to bury the lead. We want to understand what is going on. And so I want to get the big idea 
out to us right here at the get-go. Look down at verse 10. This is where everything's going to reach the main point. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Maybe you've already seen it there in verse 10. This is the big idea. This is the point that Jesus wanted all of the people in this house to walk away with. He was trying to help them to understand that he has authority to forgive sins. Jesus of Nazareth has authority to to forgive sins. The word authority might have caught some of your attention because this is an ongoing or developing, I should say, theme here in Mark's presentation of the gospel of Jesus. Earlier in Mark chapter 1 and verse 22, we read there that Jesus taught the scriptures not like the scribes would teach, but he taught the scriptures as one who had authority. So we learn there in chapter 1 that Jesus His teaching was authoritative teaching. It was unique. It was different. It actually came from God. But now here in chapter 2, we're learning that Jesus has authority to forgive people's sins. And as it turns out, the authority to forgive a person's sins is an authority that belongs to God. And therefore, it's a God-like authority. The title of this morning's sermon is just that. It's God-like authority. So with this story's lead in mind, let's now work through the text and see how Jesus gets to making this point in verses 10 and 11. Let's start right at the top in verses 1 and 2 with the setting. We do not know for sure how much time has passed between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning now of chapter 2. It could have been a few weeks Possibly it was even a couple of months. We just have no idea. But Jesus, as this chapter begins, stealthily re-enters the city of Capernaum, which has become his base of operations. Let's just reread it in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, the home that it's referring to is likely the home of Simon and his brother Andrew, which Jesus had ministered out of before back in chapter 1. But of course, just like with celebrities today, word gets out that Jesus is there. Okay, it says there in verse 1 that it was reported. People start telling other people, hey, Jesus is back. He's in Capernaum again. He's over at Simon and Andrew's house and before long, this secret spreads everywhere. It's very hard to keep secrets in a small town and Capernaum's not a very big place. And so as the people learn that Jesus is back and he's at this particular house, the crowds begin to show up because they want to see Jesus and hear from Jesus again. And so as they gather together, Jesus takes the opportunity now to begin ministering once again to the people of Capernaum. Now, the last time that he ministered to them, they had brought all of the people to this very house at sundown, and Jesus was healing lots and lots of people and driving out lots and lots of demons, and that was the ministry that he was doing. But now as the crowds fill this house once again, Jesus leads a home Bible study. Look at verse 2. 
And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. That'd be an awesome thing to underline. And he was preaching the word to them. Now Mark depicts the scene here as standing room only. Right? I mean, the people are packed out in this house. Maybe there's 40, 50 people here, but it's, it's standing room only. There's not even room in the entrance of the door anymore. There are people everywhere. The crowds have gathered, and Jesus is preaching the word to them. Jesus is doing the very thing that he came to earth to do. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we discussed how this was the focus of Jesus' earthly ministry. So often our attention as we read the Gospels is drawn to the miracles of Jesus. So we read this text and, and uh, rightfully so, we just go, oh my gosh, I can't believe he healed this paralyzed guy. But Jesus' focus, his attention was primarily on preaching the Gospel of God to the people all over Israel. In Mark 1.38 we read that he said to his disciples, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also For that is why I came out. This is why I'm here. I'm here to preach the gospel. And so he's in this crowded living room. And he is preaching the word of God to the people. But suddenly there's an interruption. And this moves the narrative forward. The interruption is found in verses 3 and 4. Let's reread it. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I mean, what a crazy thing to witness, right? The people are gathered. They're sitting attentively, like all of you wonderful people are sitting attentively here this morning. And they're listening to preaching just like we are this morning. Of course, there's a far more interesting preacher named Jesus. And so everybody is hanging on every word. Okay, they're just laser focused on what Jesus is saying. And then suddenly, they begin hearing a bit of a commotion on the roof above them. See, in, uh, at this time and place, the way that houses were constructed is they generally had a flat roof. And that flat roof would just have wood beams built across it. And then they would cover those wood beams with other branches and thatch and they would either put clay on there or a bunch of compact dirt. And so that roof would be accessed by an external staircase. And people would go on roofs for all sorts of things. They would store things on their roof. They might sleep up there for a nap during the cool of the day or in the evening. But these men go up there and they just begin removing the roof. They start taking this roof apart. And of course, as this is happening, dirt and debris would have started falling down. At first, it would have just been a little bit. You would have been sitting in the front row in front of Jesus and just felt a little bit of dirt hit your arm. You would have just done that and probably brushed it off, and that was weird. Kind of like when it first starts raining, you know, and you feel like a drop or two, and you're like, is it sprinkling right now? And then suddenly, more and more comes down. I always know it's raining first because I'm bald. They say bald people always know it's raining first. You feel those drops before all of you people with those nice heads of hair feel it. You'll know it's sprinkling. 
But they're feeling the debris kind of falling on them. But then it's more and more because these guys start really peeling back the roof up here. And so they're looking up and they're going, what is going on up here? And it would have only taken a couple of minutes tops for them to open up a hole in a roof like that. And all of a sudden, once they get the hole opened up, they, they actually lower down this man who's laying on a cot or think of like a stretcher. And they lower him down and he lands right in front of Jesus, the preacher. It's incredible. Now, before we consider Jesus' response to this interruption, it's important for us to just stop and consider the perseverance of these four men. I mean, they went and they picked up this guy from his house, presumably. They loaded him on a cot and they traveled across town to get to Simon and Andrew's house. And when they get there, they get to the door and they really want to take this man to Jesus, but they can't even get through the crowd. So they're kind of turned away at the door. And how easy would it have been for these guys to just say, oh, well, we tried. Let's turn back around and take him back home. And maybe we can bring him tomorrow or at some future point and we can get this man to Jesus. That would have been very easy for them to do. But instead, they get to the door and they say, there's no way to get to Jesus in a traditional way. But that's all right. Let's figure this out. I know what we could do. Let's take him up on the roof and we'll just lower him down in front of Jesus. They did something radical and extreme to make sure that this man was brought to Jesus. They were determined to get this man to Jesus. How grateful do you think that this paralytic ultimately was for the perseverance of these four men? I mean, it results in a moment we're going to see in the forgiveness of his sins, but also in the healing of his paralysis. This was a man who literally could not get to Jesus on his own. He had no way of doing that. He was fully dependent on help from these other four men. And what love they demonstrated in serving this man in this way. Much like Jesus, they were obviously moved with compassion and pity for this man. And they just thought, we want to see him healed. I love the thought-provoking question that our brother Vijay asks in our Gospel of Mark study guide. He asks this, he says, does this group of friends inspire you? And as I read that question, I thought to myself, yeah, that, they do inspire me. He says, are there people in your life who need your help to get to Jesus? It's a great question to consider. He gives us some categories that we could think through. He says, consider the abused, the depressed, the mentally ill, or unreached people groups. I mean, Vijay is trying to help us to think about that, that there are people in our cultural context and in our spheres of influence who literally have roadblocks that are keeping them from getting to Jesus. And it's going to take somebody like you or like me having enough compassion and love to be moved to actually aid that person in meeting Jesus and finding Jesus. Unreached people groups around the world are not going to meet Jesus until somebody like you or me takes it upon themselves to say, this is our calling. I'm going to devote myself to this people group And take them the gospel. It's incredible. It's inspiring to see the heart and the love and the sacrifice of these four men. 
Well, we don't know if their service toward this man inspired everybody in this living room 2,000 years ago, but I think we can fairly assume that it shocked everybody in this living room 2,000 years ago. This spectacle of this man coming down from the roof was a sermon stopper for sure. Now, personally, I cannot think of a single time that I have preached, and I've preached hundreds if not thousands of times, that there was an interruption that was so significant that I actually had to stop preaching. I've come close. I recall one time I was preaching chapel at Cal Baptist University, and I just get up into the pulpit, and we're in their gymnasium, and there's probably, I don't know, 1,500 students there, and I start sharing the introduction, and I look up, and I start seeing students doing this. Because there's a bird that is flying around the gymnasium and it's dive bombing at different people. And I'm just like, you messenger of Satan. That's what I'm thinking. But it takes all of 10 seconds, 20 seconds for every student to tell another student and everybody knows and everybody's looking at this bird. And I'm like in my introduction, which is really critical. Like you need to capture people's attention, right? And these are college students, so it's even more critical. And I'm this close to just throwing in the towel and being like, we're just going to stop. Let's talk about the bird here. Let's see if animal control can come and fix the problem. I'm that close to stopping when, by God's grace, this bird just flies and lands up in the rafters. And it didn't come down for the rest of the message. So I didn't have to stop the sermon. I came very, very close with that distraction. But a bird flying overhead versus a paralytic being dropped down in front of me while I'm preaching are very different. And I can guarantee you if that happened this morning, we would be stopping and we'd be considering the new circumstances. And that's what happens here with Jesus. This, in one one sense, is a sermon stopper. But in another sense, I want you to notice that it actually becomes a sermon starter. Look at what Jesus does in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. We have no idea what Jesus was preaching on, the specifics of it anyway, before the paralytic was lowered down in this room. But we know where the sermon went from there. Suddenly Jesus pivots here and he announces to this man that his sins are forgiven. And the reason Jesus pivots the way he does is because Jesus saw something. Look again at verse 5. The text says that Jesus saw their faith. It's an interesting way to say it. Jesus saw their faith. How do we see faith? I mean, by definition, isn't faith kind of an internal private thing that a person has? It's your beliefs, it's your ideas, it's your faith. That's certainly how most secular people conceive of the idea of faith. But that's not a biblical understanding of faith. I've used this analogy before. um, but, But consider trying to teach a toddler to jump into the pool for the first time. Okay, so you've got a toddler and they're standing on the edge of the pool. And you're in the water. And I've been in this position with my boys. And you're in the water and you're standing there with your arms up. You're saying, hey, jump to dad. Jump to dad. And they're looking at you and they're going, yeah, not on your life, buddy. That's scary. I'm not jumping down there. And you, you keep saying, hey, jump to dad. And then, you know, your wife's trying to help out. And she's looking from the side of the pool. And she's going, look how strong dad is. Jump to dad. He'll catch you. He's not going to let you go. And you keep telling your child that. 
And then you end up saying things like this. You say, just, just trust me. Trust me, I'll catch you. I won't let you go underwater. And of course, if your child does trust you, they're going to jump. They're going to trust that you can catch them. And if they back away, they're obviously communicating, I, I don't see it the way mom sees it. Your muscles aren't that big and I don't trust you to catch me in this moment. See, when you really have faith in something, it creates action. There's a response to that. And true faith, biblically, always creates action. There's evidence. There's what the Bible would call fruit that is born from true biblical faith. In the book of James, it says faith without works is dead. Now, that does not mean that faith legitimizes your, or that works legitimize your faith, but it does mean that works are the byproduct of your faith. They're evidence that you have true saving faith. If you've really trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, good works will flow out of your life. True faith creates action. So bringing it back to Mark 2, these four men had heard that Jesus was healing people, all sorts of people from all sorts of afflictions. Or, more likely, they had seen this themselves the last time Jesus was in Capernaum. And they watched Jesus heal person after person of disease and infirmity. And when they heard that Jesus is back in Capernaum again, they said, oh, we've got a guy, we need to get to Jesus. See, they believed that Jesus was able to heal this man. And they told this man, hey, we know this Jesus can heal you. We've seen him heal a bunch of other people. And he believed that and gave them the green light and said, yeah, carry me over there. Let's go meet this Jesus. They all had faith, but that faith created an action plan. They actually came to Jesus. They demonstrated their faith through their action. And when Jesus saw their faith on display, he responds to it. But not initially in the way that they or we would have expected him to. We would have expected him to say something like this. Your faith has made you well. And the man's healed. Jesus does similar things to other people, but he doesn't go that route. He says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This is a big shift in the text. This moves us now to see what I'm calling the deepest need. See, the paralytic and his four friends were looking for physical healing on this day, which is okay, and which we know is going to come, but Jesus is first and foremost concerned with healing his soul. See, down in verse 8, we're going to find that Jesus was able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts of the scribes. And he knew what they were thinking. He knew what was going on internally. But Jesus is able to discern the thoughts and beliefs of this man's heart as well. And he knows that his faith that has accepted Jesus as healer has also accepted Jesus as Savior. And because of his faith in the Lord, Jesus announces that his sins are forgiven. And friends, Jesus here helps us to see that humanity's deepest need is spiritual and not physical. It's very tempting as we look at all the problems in the world to believe that humanity's deepest needs are physical. We look out at the world right now and we say, you know what we need? We need peace in the Middle East and we need peace in places like Ukraine. That's the deep need of the world right now. Or we think 
about how people in the world need food or they need access to clean drinking water or they need medicines like we have here in the West. And all of those things are great and all of those things are deeply important needs, but they're not our deepest need. Our deepest need is a spiritual need. Humanity's deepest need is a need for God's forgiveness of their sins so that we can be reconciled in relationship to God. That's what you were created for. To know God, to love God, and to live your life in the love of God. And our sins are the great obstacle to that, so we need forgiveness. And Jesus makes that the priority. As a church, apostles, we need to stay focused on the primary needs of the people in our community. Yes, it is a wonderful thing for us to care for the physical needs, the earthly needs of those around us, but never at the expense or to the neglect of their more fundamental spiritual needs. Like Jesus, we must prioritize the spiritual. As a pastor, I long for our church to be known as a place where physical needs are being met. Do people need food and clothing in our community? Great, we provide that. Does somebody among us need affordable housing? Hey, we help with that. Does a child need to be fostered or adopted? We're on it. Do babies in the womb need defending? We're standing up for them. Does somebody need a friend? They can find one here. I want this church to be known for helping people's physical needs to be met. All of that's wonderful. But as a pastor, I'll tell you more than any of that, I want our church to be known as a place where people's spiritual needs are being met. Where people's souls are being fed and nourished and strengthened through the teaching of God's word. Where the gospel is faithfully and consistently and clearly being preached among us so that non-Christians are responding in faith and repentance and are being reconciled to God and are being able to grow and transform into the people that God actually created them to be. And Jesus, our Savior, prioritizes this man's spiritual need and we must follow him in that prioritization. He says to him, your sins are forgiven. What a wonderful, wonderful moment in this man's life. I mean, how unburdening must have that been for his soul to hear from Jesus that his sins are forgiven. But this announcement wasn't well received by everybody that day. We know there were at least some people in the crowd who were rubbed the wrong way. And this brings us to the conflict starting in verse 6. Look at this. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Insert the scribes. Now we've met these guys before. The scribes were the Old Testament theologians. They're the ones who knew this book inside and out. They were the experts on Old Testament theology and law. And their interpretations of the Old Testament were sort of the gold standard in Israel. They were the teachers that everybody respected and looked up to. In Luke's gospel, we find out that they're joined by another group of people called the Pharisees. This is Luke 5.17. It's telling this same story from Luke's perspective. He says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, he's referring to the scribes, were sitting there. 
who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Notice in that verse there that's on the screen in Luke, that these religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, they're not just coming from Capernaum. They're actually coming from all the surrounding areas, even way down in the south in the capital city of Jerusalem, which is the the spiritual center of Israel. Jesus had captured the imagination of the whole nation. And these religious leaders are coming and they're increasing their scrutiny of Jesus. Wait, he's teaching what? Wait, he's doing what? We need to go and we need to investigate this guy ourselves. And from here on out, we're going to see this growing tension in Mark's gospel between Jesus, God's Messiah, and the religious establishment. But notice where the tension begins. What do the scribes say here? They accuse Jesus of blasphemy. What's that? Well, blasphemy is to speak irreverently about God or sacred things. And notice why they are making this claim about Jesus. Their reasoning is like this. They're saying, in claiming to forgive this man's sins, Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do. That's God's prerogative to forgive people of sins. Our sins as human beings are against God first and foremost, and he's the only one who can forgive us. And so they're sitting there and they're reasoning within themselves. They're saying, that's blasphemous. Who does this guy think he is to tell this man that his sins can be forgiven? He has no right. Of course, they don't vocalize this. The scriptures tell us that they're, they're just saying this in their own hearts, in their own thought life, but... Jesus hears it nonetheless. Look at verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? They must have been freaked out when Jesus said that. Right? I mean, how alarming would that be? You're sitting in Bible study and Jesus says something and you start questioning in your heart. And then he tells you the very thing that you're questioning in your heart. Jesus perceiving in his spirit, so he knows what's going on. What does this tell us about who this Jesus might be? He knows what they're thinking. And because he knows what they're thinking, he uses this opportunity to make a stunning revelation about himself. And now we're driving toward the main point of Mark 2, 1 through 12. We see now the authority to forgive. Look at the leading question that Jesus asks in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. So which is easier? To look at a person and say, hey, your sins are forgiven, or to look at a paralytic and to say to that person, rise, take up your bed and walk. The answer is obvious, isn't it? Right, because if I were to say, If I were to say to Nathan, your sins are forgiven you. There's no way for anybody in this room to actually test or verify whether that's true or not. I mean, has God actually in heaven taken a whiteboard to Nathan's life and erased every sin he's committed? Has that actually occurred? We we couldn't test or verify that. So I could say that to Nathan. I could say that to every one of you all day long and nobody could ever accuse me of lying or Or question whether or not what I was saying actually happened. 
But as Jesus points out, if, if we had somebody who was paralyzed, think of a quadriplegic, and I were to say to that person, rise, take up your bed and walk, we can all test that immediately in real time. Does that person get up and begin to walk or not? And if they don't, you all know we're dealing with a false teacher here. If that person does, well, then who knows what we're dealing with? But they're about to find out. So Jesus leads in with this question, and certainly the scribes and the Pharisees would have been sitting there going, well, clearly, it's rise, take up your bed and walk. So after setting them up, look at what he says in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Incredible. All these people just witnessed this man being lowered down on a cot, laying there with paralysis in front of Jesus. And now Jesus tells him to get up off of his bed and walk out. And he does. He literally gets up in front of the room. Again, it's standing room only. So he's like, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me. As he's making his way back out, I'm out of here. I'm just going to run forest run like all the way home because I haven't been able to do this. I mean, he would have been leaping with joy that his body was working the right way again. This is an incredible miracle and an incredible scene. But family, don't miss the point. This is why we got the lead out early. Don't miss the point. Look again in verse 10. Jesus is telling you the purpose of why he's going to tell this man to do this. But that you may know, I want you to know something about me. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you. So there's a purpose here. Now I hinted at this in an earlier sermon in Mark, but now this is becoming crystal clear. Namely, that the major purpose of Jesus' miracles was to validate or to confirm his message. He's going around and he's healing people, yes, because he's compassionate, yes, because he loves people. That's certainly a part of it. But behind all of that, it's serving a purpose for Jesus. He came to preach the gospel of God and he's using miracles as a way of verifying and authenticating that he is a true messenger from God, that his words and his gospel are God's truth. His focus was preaching the gospel. And his miracles served that purpose. The paralytic rising up and walking out of the room was the proof that Jesus, in fact, had authority and has authority to forgive that man's sins. And your sins and my sins. And as I said at the beginning, this is an authority that is a godlike authority. Jesus was letting everyone know in that house that he was more than a gifted rabbi or teacher. And that he was more than a miracle worker and a healer. He was in fact God in the flesh. That he was the one who has authority to forgive the sins of people. G. Campbell Morgan, a great preacher and pastor of a previous generation said this. 
the scribes were quite right when they said, who can forgive sins but one, even God? So they got that right doctrinally. They were wrong, he says, when they said, why does this man thus speak? He blasphemes. They did not know him. End quote. And so it turns out that in slandering Jesus in their own hearts, it was actually the scribes and the Pharisees who were the ones guilty of blasphemy and not Jesus of Nazareth. You've probably heard this before, but sometimes people will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That was something that later followers of Jesus began saying about him after he was long gone. But family, that's simply not true. There are numerous places in the Gospels where Jesus either directly or indirectly made statements that were statements affirming that he in fact was God. And this is the first example we find in Mark. But you have to know that this charge of blasphemy is going to be leveled at Jesus over and over and over again throughout his ministry for precisely that reason. Because he, being a man, is making himself out to be God. This is John 10, 33. Jesus ruffles feathers again and the Jews said to him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Friends, this is the big point of this passage. Jesus forgave this man's sins. And then because of the internal dialogue of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, I can use that. I'm going to teach these people something today. I'm going to teach them that I have the authority to forgive sins because I, in fact, am not an ordinary man. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. A moment ago, I said that humanity's deepest need is spiritual. We need forgiveness of our sins. And now we see that Jesus is the only one who has the authority to actually forgive those sins. Jesus is the only one who is capable of meeting your deepest need, your spiritual need. And that's because Jesus is the one who paid for our sins. When we get to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus went to the cross, he went there and he died for the sins of his people. He died in the place of every single person who would ever put their faith and trust in him, like this paralytic did 2,000 years ago. And so he bore the wrath of God, the judgment for our sins, and he has an authority to therefore declare, your sins are forgiven. I paid for that. There's no more debt looming in your life if you've come to Jesus by faith. And so, friend, if you've never turned to Jesus by faith, if you've never called out to Jesus and asked him to forgive you of your sins, then that is the point of today's sermon. There's nothing more important for you to do in your life than to actually come to Jesus and allow Jesus to meet the deepest need of your life. And you do that by faith. Now this passage, of course, appears to end on a very high note. We saw it right there in verse 12. It looks like it ends on a high note for Jesus and for the man that he healed. But as we close, let's just carefully consider this response in verse 12. 
12. You would imagine that every single person in that, that house and every single person in Capernaum was converted on the spot after what just happened. Well, shoot, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to trust this guy from this day forward. He's going to be my Messiah. And on, at first glance, it almost sounds that way. Look how verse 12 ends. It says, they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Of course they hadn't. We've never seen anything like this. So it sounds like everybody ends in this place of acceptance of Jesus. But guess what? We know that's not the case. We know that the scribes and the Pharisees largely rejected Jesus of Nazareth all the way up until his death. And we know that the people of Capernaum largely rejected Jesus. It's shocking. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. He says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, you guys remember Sodom and Gomorrah? It would have remained until this day. That was an evil, wicked city. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Clearly, the masses of people in Capernaum ultimately failed to come to faith in Jesus of Nazareth. And so one of the major takeaways in this story from Capernaum is that every single one of us needs to make sure that we do not, like the scribes and like the people in general, fall short of saving faith. It is actually possible to be around Jesus. And it's possible to even see with your own eyes evidence of the power of Jesus in the lives of people and yet never come to a place of true faith in Christ. I mean, that might be the story of some of you here this morning. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you love the church. Maybe you've always been a part of a church. And in that context, you've seen the power of Jesus on display many, many times. As people over and over again are brought from death to life. And you see lives restored. And you've witnessed all of that. And you see the power of the Holy Spirit on display. And yet you've never actually come to trust in Jesus. Maybe you've only come to admire him. Or respect him. But friends, Jesus never said, admire me. Jesus never said, respect me. Jesus did say, follow me. That's the call. We have to actually entrust ourselves to him and begin to follow him. All of us need to make a conscious decision to put our faith in Jesus. And whenever a person does that, they have the assurance of God's word. That their sins are forgiven. And because their sins are forgiven, they can have the hope of the resurrection. In closing, it should not be lost on us that Jesus forgave this man's sin and restored his body. Both things happen in Mark chapter 2. And that's as it should be. The gospel of God is big enough to include this man's healing as well. See, sometimes as Christians, we talk about the gospel in limited or shrunken ways, as if the gospel is only about the redemption of our souls. But the gospel that Jesus preached and later that the apostles preached is not just about the salvation of souls. 
It's also about the restoration of all of fallen creation. And the healing of this man's body is a picture of the restorative work that Christ's death and resurrection will affect on all of creation. And from time to time, just like with this paralytic, God delights in supernaturally healing people in this day and age as evidence, as a foretaste of the work that he will do at the end of the age. Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, all of creation has been subject to death and decay. But we know that at the return of Christ, he will renew all of creation, ushering in a new heavens and a new earth. And of course, included in that restoration is the restoration of our bodies if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so while it's true that Jesus on this day healed this man to prove that he has authority to forgive sins, it is equally true that he healed this man as a foretaste of what every child of God will experience at the resurrection. Everything that is wrong and broken in our bodies will be made right. Gloriously right. More right than they've ever been right before. And so... We're beginning now to get some clearer answers to the questions that were swirling about Jesus in Capernaum. Who is he? And he did what? This Jesus is the God-man. He's the forgiver of our sins and he's the redeemer of all that is broken. And this should leave every single one of us amazed and glorifying God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. God, we do stand amazed at the amazing work of Jesus Christ. God, we're blown away by the love and the compassion that he displayed in coming to this earth 2,000 years ago. And God, we are thankful for the good news that he preached to the world and then the good news that he actually affected in the world through his death and his resurrection. And Father, we pray that you would continue to strengthen and grow our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. That we would look to him day in and day out as the only one who can meet our deepest needs. That we would cast all of our faith and our trust upon him. Thank you that in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Thank you that in Christ, we also are called sons of God as this paralytic was because our relationship with the Father has been restored. And Father, we just pray also in closing that if there are any among us who do not yet know you, they've never put their faith in Jesus, we pray that that would change. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give them faith, faith like these four men in this paralytic, that they would come to Jesus to find in him all that they need. God, help us this week to just live in a way that honors and glorifies you, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We love you. We worship you today. In Christ's name, amen.